introduction, my name is Laura. I'm the program coordinator here at Bethany Retirement Community. I'm going to say welcome to the Greater Midwest Foodways presentation <laughs> and introduce uh, today's fearless leader for the group, who is Kathy, right. who is going to go ahead and go, she has a couple of announcements, and then she's going to introduce the, the speakers for the day. Good morning, everybody. But we're going to make this work because, darn it, we're here. We're happy that you're here. And we're just, that's just the way it goes. And did anybody, by the way, bring community cookbook from home? Oh, good. One person. And me. Anybody else? And you're welcome to interject and add things because I think this is a conversation that we're all interested in. Community cookbooks. And we have a husband and wife team, which is not too... There's not, you know, was it two cooks in the kitchen type thing and you still survive? <laughs> and you still survive? It's Tim and Rebecca Graham. Tim's from Missouri and Rebecca's from Salt Lake City. Uh, yep. Terrific. So how did you get to be where you are today? Well, here specifically in relation to the cookbooks, <laughs> uh, we've, we've just opened our, our first restaurant in Chicago uh, about four months ago. So we're brand new business owners and... Uh, Loving it sometimes and frightened of it others. Um, but uh, that's, this started uh, the cookbook passion. Uh, my parents had an early eBay business selling mid-century modern stuff. Uh, furniture to glassware to everything. So I was dragged to a whole lot of flea markets uh, growing up. Um, and pretty much the only thing my allowance could afford at the flea markets was these books. And I wanted to leave with something because, you know, 11-year-old doesn't just want to go. Um, and uh, found, you know, that I had started to have quite a few of them by the time I went to college. Um, and then it just sort of took off the last few years. I, as we thought about the restaurant concept, the restaurant concept, it's called Twain, the restaurant. Um, and it's very tied into the food pathways and sort of food reminiscence of anywhere that touches the Mississippi River. So up from Minnesota all the way south. I, I grew up in Missouri. The river's a huge part of our identity there. Um, and looking at the bookshelf, I was like, well, geez, I have a collection. And uh, once you let somebody know you collect these, then you just get more, hundreds more. Like, uh, it, was, it, it launched into a real collection now. Um, and have just always found them to be individual treasures. I, I really, really love the, they're almost time capsules in a way, and uh, I, I've pulled out some of my favorites to read little sections later, but uh, that's how it started, uh, being dragged to flea markets with the family, so. <laughs> and in fact, when you talk about this being a time treasure, I, I was told this story recently, this was some town, I think, in South Dakota, and there was the the church ladies had this candy that they made and everybody loved it and then they got to the point where they got old and how it is with volunteers um, they got old they stopped doing it and then they sort of died away and everybody started reminiscing about this candy nobody had the recipe they found one of the older community cookbooks and there was the recipe you know, so it is a time capsule if you, especially if you are from that town and you know the people and some of the circumstances. hundred percent. Yep. Like my parents have given me some, they're from central Kansas mm -hmm. and uh, they know the names in the, uh, in the books and that it just means so much to them, you know, so. It does. It does. Now, did you share this interest in community cookbooks? You don't have to, you know, you're an independent person. <laughs> Um, well, I, I came through Tim, actually. I've, I've never been a chef. I've always been on the other side of the coin. I actually uh, study wine and beverage. I make cocktails and things like that. And so, you know, our dinner parties are awesome. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, I remember even on one of our early dates before we were uh, even serious together, he was pulling things off the shelf uh, to show me like little passages and little beautiful little quips and, and just like delightful uh, quotes and phrases that we find in the books. So my uh, fascination with the books comes from more of a bibliophile stance. Sure. Unless the history of, of uh, recipes. Um, I've always been an avid book collector and uh, I'm 
you know, books as objects have always been a really fascinating thing for me. And so to be able to take that and pair it with my uh, own restaurant career and life has, has been really wonderful. Do you find so. many cocktail recipes in any of these books? Actually, you know, surprisingly, uh, it's kind of era specific. So it depends on where in the country and what time. Uh, in the 50s, uh, there are several because after World War II, uh, people, you know, were getting back into entertaining and there was quite, uh, quite a pitch uh, from uh, a lot of places, uh, Esquire magazine and uh, teaching young men how to host parties and things like that. So you do see a handful of, of things that are organized around including cocktails. Um, or including alcohol or in non-alcoholic punches and things like that. Um, but for the most part, uh, there's not much up until the 70s. Um, after oh, in the about, 70s it was more? About, after about 1970, you start to see um, one or two punches. It's usually something like uh, a fruit punch and add a bottle of champagne for a special occasion. So you can drink it um, just as a fruit punch or you can, you know... And add the like, sparkles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, where I found the most inspiration for our program at the restaurant uh, in terms of the beverage side is actually the, the jams and the jellies and the colloquial um, sort of preparations of uh, local ingredients that everybody was doing because they, you know, basically anything that you can find on the ground, um, somebody has tried to turn into some kind of preserved, uh, you know, food stuff. And so things like Queen Anne's lace, which we like look at as a weed, has been sure. turned into a jam or a jelly, and it has a really beautiful kind of carroty, delicate flavor. Um, lots of things with herbs, you know, and uh, different kinds of fruits. Everything has been preserved. You know, pear butters and apple butters and, you know, squash butters and all of these kinds of things. These recipes go back 100 years. Um, even uh, something I found is a red oak tea, which is really interesting. And I can't seem to figure out what it was made of, but I think that it's just literally a, a, a tea, a tisane rather, made from tree leaves. So, wow. Yeah, it's kind of sweet and earthy. So. By the way, when you talk about canned food, uh, at the Missouri State Fair, one of our, they, they got first prize. They were making catfish cakes, you know, fried cakes, from catfish they had canned. Uh, you don't you, see canned fat catfish very you often. You don't. And, I, and to me, it was an indication of also the economics of that particular region or family. Because, you know, nobody, I, I've never thought anybody would can catfish. But, you know, if you're at the level where that's what you have and you need it later, you can it. Yep. So, um, has your, so, so your family is from Kansas. You grew up in Missouri. Now, what is the name Twain? I, I, I know you told me, but... Yep, so uh, wh where I grew up, I think most of Missouri, I can only speak to my own experience, but uh, Mark Twain is one of our demigods. You know, you basically read Run, Spot, Run, and then Huck Finn. Like, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just, uh, you're just indoctrinated with uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens lore uh, throughout your elementary schooling, um, even junior high. Uh, and so, for a while, the working title in our heads of the restaurant was Americana. Um, but it felt a little wrong because Americana to somebody that grew up in Seattle is a different version of Americana than I grew up with next to the river. And it didn't feel like it told the story uniquely and specifically enough. Uh, and then one day we're sitting on the couch one night and uh, it just occurred, Twain just popped in my head and it just felt right. Um, so it is named for Mark Twain. Um, he's from Hannibal, Missouri, uh, not too far from where I grew up. And then twain is also an archaic form of twin or two, uh, which speaks to Rebecca and I in the project together. So, yeah, that's where is it at? Uh, Milwaukee Avenue uh, in the north side of Chicago, Logan Square. What what, what address? Uh, Twenty four forty five North Milwaukee, just north of Fullerton. Ah, okay, so. that helps yep. a lot. Um, so you, you wanted said you wanted to read a few passages. Yeah. So, this is 
one of the first ones I ever got, and uh, you can see I've had to protect it uh, through the years. Um, and it's one of the, sort of the, when home ec was a science, um, when home ec was a real way to teach people how to manage their homes once they were married, really. Uh, a lot of this goes into gender roles that aren't as accepted today, perhaps, but uh, you know, these books were put out by, this is the Culinary Arts Institute, uh, but they were put out as help to women on how to use products more thriftily, how to use products at all, really, uh, as the new products started to come into the grocery stores um, that were different than what they'd grown up with. Um, and it's from Chicago. It, it is from Chicago, yep. Um, the sort of growing up on the apron strings was starting to be phased out a little bit as women went to work uh, in the workplace. So that level of handed down knowledge, that sort of chain, had been kind of broken. And so they needed things like this to, to help finish that sort of finishing education. Um, what the heck to do in the kitchen and how to get dinner on the table. Um, and so this is the one on one of our first dates. It's just... Uh, <laughs> They, if you could see the pic, they just do strange things with Jello at this <laughs> in this era. Like uh, those are hot dogs in the in the gleaming aspic, as they call it, and uh, and hard boiled eggs, and uh, you know, geez, uh, we have yet to figure out Jello on our menu. Um, Is this one of those competition cookbooks where you would win ten thousand dollars? Oh no, this is product? this is a serious institute. They're, they have, like, if you get the full complement of them, they're, it, it, I've seen it. It's a stack like this big. Cool. I, I always keep, my, my parents still hit the flea market circuits, and so I'm always, anytime they can find one with this logo on it, yep. uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm always pleased when they bring it by. Oh, if you let me know what you already have, then I can, awesome. when I'm running around looking, I can pick something <laughs> up. <laughs> what so, year is it published? Uh, let's see, 1941. 1941. So, uh, you know, you're you're in the war at this point. You know, there's, uh, you know, I wouldn't say rations necessarily, but things are tight. Things are tight. Uh, yep. Uh, but this 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 quote. I'm gonna read. It just cracks me up. It's such carte blanche freedom they give you here. Almost anything you like can be rolled in bacon. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so many recipes here have eight strips of bacon in this book. And uh, this recipe for bacon rolls has two ingredients, eight strips of bacon and four tablespoons peanut butter. I haven't made this one yet. Uh, but uh, I cannot wait. There's no, no greater freedom. It's my favorite things to eat. Almost anything you like can be rolled in bacon. Well, thank you. I make bacon and, and peanut butter. And sandwiches. <laughs> sandwiches, awesome. Nice. <laughs> so that's a that's a treasure from 1941, and uh, uh, this one is just kind of heartwarming here, um, right here. So this is from the Sunflower Plaza Tower, which is in Ottawa, Kansas, which is still a standing building. I've Googled it. Uh, the trees are a little bit bigger, um, <laughs> and it is a retirement community as well. Um, and so the first part of it is kind of pitching the, the, the place to, to live. Um, they have a first floor lobby. They have all of the, they're listing their things almost to sell it probably to the kids. Um, but then they go through and list all the wonderful things they have here. And then the final paragraph is just so heartwarming. It's uh, <laughs> the purpose of this cookbook is to raise enough money to purchase a projector and screen for our entertainment, especially during the long winter evenings. Hey, that's, oh, a, that's a good cause. You know, yeah, they're, they're looking at slides of old but, vacations. They're looking at, you know, so. But some of the origins of, of community cookbooks was from the Civil War. Because at that time, they were, they were raising money to buy bandages to send to the front. So there's a, it's just a continuity. Just the, the, the goal has changed. Uh, just yeah, what they're buying has changed, but they're almost, you, I would say 98% of them are done as a fundraising campaign. 
Um, you know, very few of them, and you can see the ladies that think a lot of themselves because, uh, did I bring one? Uh, sometimes, right here, uh, this is just from my collection. Only Lois Dudley Burke. Like, uh, most are shared and a, 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 a real smorgasbord of everybody in the community gives their recipe, right? Well, this lady, she either knew how to type or, uh, but, uh, so uh, I, I love the fact that she has her own, you know? Um, and that's, you know, that's something I think that, uh, if I could diverge just a little bit into sort of the larger, some of the larger things you can see when you have this many of these books, and this is just a small sampling. Um, you know, we, we probably have close to 300 at home. Um, but this is my grandma's first cookbook. Um, she was given to it, and that's the church where she got married, and uh, given to her when she got married. Because um, here you go, go be a good wife, you know? Um, and she was a very, rigid lady, uh, the kind of house that had plastic on all the couches, um, you know, I'm like, I could never realize, but that's just the kind of, every tabletop was covered in glass, you know, um, and uh, this recipe that says, scant three cups flour, well, Grandma Graham has written two and three quarters because she did not live in a world of scant. Um, that was just a little too loose for Grandma. And, uh, so, <laughs> she, 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 and she made the greatest salmon cakes. You know, she was a good cook. Um, but books in this era, one thing I love about these is that everybody's going to give their best recipe. Yes. You know, nobody's going to want to put their name on some mediocre recipe. Um, and so you get the collection of the best. What year is that, uh, This one, 1944. Yeah. Um, I have my grandmother's church cookbook, too, and it's from an earlier year. It is so fun to read because there's no oven temperature. <laughs> no, they're not. Well, that's yes. exactly Put in a medium oven. <laughs> that's exactly right. uh, in, in fact, when I was, okay, so this book that I did, the one on the family heirloom recipes, I put in the, for, in the, in the introduction that some of these recipes are from that era where oven temperature was, you know, stick your hand in the oven and wait and see how long it is before you can tolerate it. And, and, and because of that, some of them may have recently been given temperatures and times, and it's all advisory because... Who knows how long it really would take? Oh, for sure. If you had the slow oven, it took a long time. If you had the fast oven, it took a short time. But don't rely on these things verbatim. Right. Because um, you'll just get into trouble. You will. Um, so of this era, when they put their names on it, almost every time before the early 60s, they put Mrs. Jack L. Deacon or wife of Deacon Smith. They... They didn't even put their ladies' names on, you know, it was a different era. And you can actually see the switch societally in these books when you start to see, you know, early 60s. Uh, now it says Lisa M. from something, um, which is just an amazing view of history through these books that, you know, this has to be one of the only printed things in this quantity that the Library of Congress does not mandate. Uh, you know, the, if you think about how many books, every book Red you buy in the store yeah, has a uh, ISBN number. Yep, um, and these are almost guerrilla in a way that they don't get uh, sort of mandated and controlled or even cataloged uh, through that ISBN system. you also system. don't find them on Amazon then. <laughs> well, it's harder. Yeah. Oh, you can find them. Oh yeah, yeah I've, I've, you can even find this one. Like uh, there are other spiral-bound nerds out there. Um, Is any organization still making these cookbooks? Yes. Oh, yes. oh, all the time. I just received one as a gift during our restaurant opening from our uh, some Jewish friends we have from their Beth Shalom congregation in Columbia, Missouri. And then I get to see Joel Ray's name on a dish I've had at his Super Bowl parties. Like, uh, you know, so that's, that's the wonderful connection there as well. Absolutely. Um, well, that brings up the question, 
Joel Ray's name on the dish from the cookbook from right now, Lisa M or Mrs. whatever. When do you start seeing men taking credit for these recipes? Yeah, that's uh, I mid-80s. Um, and then you start to see the things like Swedish meatballs or the Vienna sausages. Like, they're even more manly dishes, you know, like, uh, then you start to see those sort of like potluck Super Bowl party uh, things. But the, the guys do start to show up and they put their name just as proudly uh, as the, the ladies. But I think you also see that tied into, again, the cultural shift um, when, you know, guys really started to cook uh, in the house and uh, take pride in it. Um, most, most chili recipes. Uh, <laughs> chili recipes chili for recipes. sure. Uh, heck, there might be four in one of those books, just, yeah. you know. <laughs> so. It's also pretty interesting. Uh, something that Tim has pointed out quite often is that, you know, up until a really specific time, right around 1965, uh, it was always women by their husbands' names. So it was Mrs. Brad Crenshaw, or, you know. You know, the, the wife of Deacon J. Adams. What happened to the spinsters? Do you remember seeing that? Yes, and they will say widow of, uh, of uh, the... Uh, <laughs> they, they will actually yeah. re refer to their to their, posthumous... To their married name. Yeah. yeah. How about in memory of an old recipe? My, some of mine, I collect these too. Some of mine have recipes from people deceased. Oh, that's, oh, that's a, I, a long-term project I'd love to do. I don't know how to make it happen, <laughs> but find the granddaughter of the name mentioned here and then make the dish with the family member of the people making it. I think that there's a, a connection to the past there that could be really exciting. But what's, as you said, you know, in a lot of these um, books, they have the best of. And this is where you run into the real problem. There's those family favorite dishes that are, you know, kind of like they're made without thinking. You know, you've done it so many times and everybody likes it. And now you're not there anymore and nobody knows how to make it. How to replicate it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we do with our family recipe contest. Not that we have a lot of the family favorites, I mean, not family favorites, but the best of. But I try very hard to get them to do those modest dishes that everybody loves that taste great. And it's difficult mm -hmm. because they just don't believe it. Well, my aunt's not allowed to come to the party if she doesn't bring cheesy potato casserole, you know, so uh, it's a... Uh... But do you, do you know how to, well, you probably do, but do you think most of the people in the family know how to make her cheesy? No. Yep. Not even you? Uh, I never made it with her. Um, you might want to. I agree. that It's funny, you say the word modest. I, my great aunt Z, uh, she's passed away now, but she used to bring a lemon cake every, every party. And we just loved it. And once I became a cook, a young cook, uh, I wanted her to teach me how to make it. And she was just confused why anybody would want that. And uh, so I go to her house, and she pulls out a yellow cake mix. And <laughs> she's like, oh, she's that. now I see why she's confused. Because uh, her secret was to poke it with the right size chopstick so that the glazed icing could get into the cake. As, uh, that, was, that was pretty much the whole technique. Um, so. but, that, but still know-how. It's yep. still know-how, you yep. know? You didn't know, and now you do. <laughs> I had a collection of cookbooks before I moved in that I am now lamenting as I sit here. And one was from the Miller family, my first boss in college. And it is a four generation, it's been published three different times. Wow. Cool. And it was originally in memory of, a, I think they were six or eight sisters. And there's the, the black and white picture of them at mom and dad's 50th wedding anniversary. And it's in memory of the sister who passed away. So originally it was her generation. She's now 90. Wow. And then their daughters, whose and sons, because it's that generation. And I just made her daughter's chicken pasta recipe, which I turned into turkey tetrazzini-ish. And now the grandchildren who have babies of their own, <laughs> and one has turned into a cookie baking business. So she would give me these family cookbooks, and I attempted it in my family, and it's what Kathy said, 
people just, they just dump and stir and they don't have proportions and I haven't been able to get people to measure a pinch or measure a handful. A pinch is an eighth of a teaspoon. <laughs> According to America's Test Kitchen, and you know, they're always right. <laughs> or at least they get a 15 track. This family to undertake is to preserve their cooking heritage. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, and that's also the big difference between being like a restaurant situation. You know, somebody comes in six months from now. I mean, the dish they ordered today and the dish they ordered six months ago because they really loved it has to roughly taste the same, which is a discipline all in itself. Whereas home cooks, you know, what I almost brought today was porcupines, ah, meatballs, sure. yeah. and and when I first actually came from this little cookbook, uh, my niece just turned 29, so that's how I know. 29 years ago, I looked up the recipe of porcupine recipe uh, meatballs, and I've been making them ever since. But when the kids were young, I put the tomato sauce in. Then my cousin came over to visit one time for a while, and then left and left a lot of stuff with us. And part of it being a half a gallon of paste uh, salsa. Salsa. That's not stuff that my family and I eat, really. So I was like, well, I'm going to make porcupines. What am I? Oh, forget it. I'm just pouring all that salsa. Well, ever since then, whatever I happen to have from takeout containers, you know, the little sauces and whatever, goes straight into that. And I tell them, well, I hope you like it, but I don't know how to ever replicate this. Because <laughs> that's the thing about the home cook. We get away with stuff we, we just we don't worry about does it taste exactly the same it tastes roughly the same it's a little like jazz yes yeah. it's great but you have the discipline of having to replicate exactly and that's that, that's, <coughs> that's yeah. different uh right here first yeah oh, well sorry. It's, it's different in my family my grandmother was from russia and she never had any written recipes and now her grandchildren including me have certain dishes that we want to replicate, so I've I have a couple that I really like. So I've recreated the recipes. Then my cousin and my brother were both interested, so I sent them the recipes, and then they make their own modifications because we all think we remember how it tastes. And so the problem is that you want it to taste the way you remembered it tasting. So one of them is cabbage borscht. It's not it, borscht is not the real name for it. It's really a Russian soup, but. We call she. it she, yes, but but for some reason in Jewish families we call it cabbage portion it has no beets in it at all. It's a hot soup. Um, but it's sweet and sour. So I make mine with brown sugar and lemon juice. I like the brown sugar better than the white sugar. My brother decided that's how he, he said to me, Well, how do you make your sweet and sour? And I told him he said, Perfect. My cousin uses sour salt. Because he doesn't, he thinks that tastes better. That's what my grandmother used was sour salt rather than the lemon juice. So we we just mess around with it. But we're really trying to replicate the taste. We're not interested in having like our own version. We're right. interested in having it taste the way we remember it tasting. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, she made uh, uh, eggplant caviar. And she made two versions. One was with tomato and onion, and the other was with garlic and uh, green pepper. And I could never figure out why she didn't just put them all together. So mine has all of that. But I'm guessing that there were family members that didn't like green pepper or didn't like onion. Right. And yeah. so that's why she had the two versions. But when I tell people, I say, well, that's how she did it. But I just make it and put all this stuff in. Could have been what was available at that time. Well, no, but she made both versions every time. Oh, every so time. So you could have one that was tomato and onion. Or you could have one that was green pepper and garlic. So it's not that she didn't have the ingredients. And I'm guessing that this had to do with family members' tastes and not with, with any other reason. But I like them all the other stuff. So. <laughs> so I'm a collector of these two, and I just love them. And anyway, what I really find interesting, and I find many things interesting in them, but something I find very interesting is they often start at the beginning of these community cookbooks with a section of famous people's recipes. Uh, yes, I have lots of this. And those are so fun to read. And occasionally to try the famous people of that era, whatever that era was. So they must have written to these people and said, please send a recipe. And they probably had like, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton's chocolate chip cookies. 
<laughs> yeah, I've got old presidents in some of them. People, I don't know why they're famous, because they're of a totally different generation, you know? Uh, 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 you know, I'm going to try occasionally, and I have one go-to recipe that I use everywhere, and it just gets hits. Have you ever heard of Dick Cavett? You've probably heard of Dick Cavett. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of this recipe of his? Dick Cavett's Bread Pot Fondue. No. Have any of you heard of that? Well, you are missing out on a treat. <laughs> I mean, I found that famous recipe in these cookbooks, and I've used it ever since. It's oh, that's so great. fabulous. That's wonderful. Do you find these community cookbooks from other countries? Oh, yes. I have one here. Um, from the Scottish Woman's Rural Institute, SWRI, and this is another of the funny, sort of like, the recipe title is to make an old fowl tender. <laughs> She's growing up in a different place than I did, like, uh, and almost, uh, we, uh, what was that? It was it was probably an old hen, you know, yeah. the, the French would coke up on it, um, but uh, it, in no uncertain terms does she let you know that all you have to do is rub it with lemon juice <laughs> and then wrap it in buttered paper and steam for two to three hours. Like, uh, and uh, it's just, so yes, they... I, our collection is certainly centered on the Mississippi River. I have a few from the West Coast. And something else that's interesting to see as kind of a pattern is you can see when Mexican food started to enter American vernacular. And you can see when Chinese food started to enter the American vernacular. Um, it's not nearly as authentic as what we would consider Chinese food now, but Again, they didn't really know. Soy sauce wasn't in the grocery store when my grandma was growing up, you know. And uh, so at some point when we got more globalized and, you know, plenty of new friends here in the country and you start to invite them over to your parties, you know, you start to sort of see the, I don't know, homogenization is not the right word, but the matriculation of those ingredients filtered through the Midwestern cook's lens. Um, and... A good example here is the art of Chinese cooking, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the, the first sentence is just a hoot. Um, and let's see, this is from 1956. Uh, so it's a, uh, let me read the very first well, it sentence It was published here. in 1956, but the actual, the writing of this uh, book happened much earlier, so. Lessons in Chinese cookery in Tokyo, conducted by American nuns. <laughs> So, oh, yeah. we got a bunch of American nuns living in Japan teaching somebody how to cook Chinese food. Like, uh, that's, that's just, I, I love that. Like, you couldn't make that, that's like the start of a novel, you know? Like, uh, so. Nobody would believe it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so, I don't have too many from other uh, countries, but when we travel abroad, I do look for them. Um, and don't do a great job. I, I don't know how common they are in like Prague. You know, the ones I find are more like, uh, they're not as homey, they're a produced thing, um, so. We're also limited by language. True. So, you know, we don't necessarily, when, when we travel in Europe or South America, we don't necessarily look out for those things because, you know, not speaking those languages, they're not to our attention. You know, we don't see them as much. Can't so, read them. Yeah. I have seen some, I found them at the local church rummage, and it was expats living in different countries. Yeah. yeah. And so they were just like, what we can find locally, and how can we make it like the food we recognize from home? Right. That, that is interesting. How can they make cheesy potato casserole if they're living in, In a know, land where there's no Dubai. cheddar cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. Yeah, sure. <laughs> The, there's a whole other category of these books, and uh, I brought one as an example. And again, this goes back to sort of household management and getting a well-run house. Um, and so these, uh, and almost all of these are from the 30s, I find, uh, from the 20s or the 30s. And this one is Cookery Illustrated in Household Management. And there's a chapter on cooking for the invalids. 
uh, a rather stern reproach on leftovers because that was just poor planning. Um, but, uh, and, uh, but there's, uh, there's all these household hints here, and I sometimes when we get in our cups at home, um, I will uh, regale my friends with children's clothing to make nearly fireproof. Man, were they just spontaneously combusting in the 20s? Like, uh, what? I mean, I imagine furnaces and the whole era was a little bit different, but it's just a little bit of alum in the, uh, in the wash water. But uh, to make nearly fireproof, like, uh, that's... Uh, Don't sit too close to the stove. I think that this must be... <laughs> so, little treasures that we don't need anymore, um, hopefully. Well, my dad had friends where the parents were also worried about fire and got them an asbestos tent. Oh. <laughs> we've learned a little as we we've got learned, along, we've too. We've learned, we've yeah. learned. <laughs> or how about, I've got, I love those really old cookbooks from the early 1900s. Butchery. Explanation. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, that would have been a squirrel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, even, even in the joy of cooking, they tell you how to deal with a squirrel. And a raccoon and a turtle. Early editions. Yeah. I don't know if does today still have it. You think? You know what? I always have older ones. Yep. That's. Uh... So I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, we were down in Florida with the kids, the car full of kids, walk, walk. And do you know? I can't tell you how many kids are horrible, normal. And so I decided I'd try turtles. It was. <coughs> I haven't tasted anything that good since. And you don't even have to go to Florida for turtle soup. Well, yeah, that's the problem. It's kind of weird the changing taste. Like, I'll read old letters from my grandma, and they'll write about how, you know, they have rabbit in mean, Rabbit was like the major meat that my grandparents ate. Oh, I know. I was all of their, they all of Veal sales have plummeted since the 50s. Do you know why? Lamb. Uh, Do you know why? Uh, no. Because of the, the, the ability to, um, to create more females than males by sorting the sperm. And so what used to be like, uh, so veal was cheap back then because what it was was they were taking care of all the baby bulls that they didn't need. Right. Now they're able to sort out what is going to be the ultimate result of the pregnancy, being female or male, and so there's a lot less male. And Vienna sausage has a problem because bull meat is part of what they use for making their hot dogs. So that's one of the reasons. But yeah, it used to be like veal birds. I'm sorry, I didn't need to drop. No, but that's... There is a reason for this. Yeah. That ties right in. This, this Now rabbit's expensive and seen as a luxury ingredient. Now veal's expensive is seen as a luxury ingredient. Well, and it's kind of weird. Like, I would like to, in a, in a week, the German Cultural Center here in Chicago is giving a cooking lesson on making rabbit stew. And I have never had rabbit, and I don't know, I just have an aversion to eating rabbit because I just see those oh, little bunnies, you know? And I'm like, how can you eat rabbit? Oh, because if you're hungry, <laughs> But a friend of mine, well, not really, but it tastes good. Uh, a friend of mine was looking for a casserole recipe recently on the internet, and the one that came up for her, to her great surprise, was made with squirrel, and it's a modern recipe. So <laughs> squirrel is still around and eaten in various places. But rabbit actually. Goodbye. I studied home at the U of I for two years until they told me I wasn't making progress towards my degree. Because I took all the home ec classes, but I avoided the chemistry for the College of Agriculture. And then I had summer roommates, and they brought the produce from their farms from Edinburgh, Illinois, and different places. And we shopped at ag sales where prime meat was being raised. And we used ground lamb, and we used rabbit that was being raised, and then the people who were studying meat production were trying to um, produce leaner products and things like that. So when I, there were five of us in the apartment, and we spent 
$25 a month on food or $5 each. And it was like Lucy and Ethel cooking in the kitchen. Tyrex <laughs> <laughs> dish because somebody didn't know you couldn't take it from the oven when the when the flame went out and put it on the, the stove. Okay. And then the Asian girls across the way when they were cleaning out the freezer brought us over their octopus. Ooh. And if you're a country farm girl, you didn't know anything about these gray frozen. <laughs> <laughs> interesting cooking in 1969 to 71 with egg sales and rabbit. Oh, <laughs> the, I, you know, I see, I see this, the generation now, um, you know, you start to see this real influx of Pinterest um, uh, of food and this uh, Instagramming of food and it's almost like that, that internet is now their home ec. Um, because certainly in my household, I didn't learn to cook from my mom. She was at work. And, uh, you know, now we have a whole lot of single family homes or uh, single parent homes more than perhaps we did in the past. And there's this transfer of knowledge that these young kids now, millennials, are discovering how to cook, but they're doing it on their own and through their own mediums um, because they didn't grow up with that sort of rote knowledge taught by mom. This is how you do it. This is a pinch. This is uh, the recipe. And, but I do think that it's coming. It's, it's, it's such a part of society and civilization. It's coming back in a new way. Um, and it's just, you know, the, the, the parallels are, are pretty strong. The internet is now these, you know, so. I just think millennials knew how to cook. Oh, they do. You know, a lot of them do. They do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> the blind leading the blind. <laughs> you might be right, but even even this home ex scientist over here had pyrexes exploding, and uh, you know, and uh, so it's there, there's a bit of you get to eat your mistakes, um, yes. but uh, you, you know. Nowadays, what I read about the millennials when I sit on food boards and other types of things, it is now a social occasion to come over and, and cook together. Um, it, it's not perhaps as utilitarian um, as it was back in the 20s with these kind of books. Um, it, it's, it's a way for them to, to have a, a, a social gathering and have community um, as we get more invested in our phones and don't have those personal interactions um, is one of the things I think is a great tool for, for the Pinterest set and those types of things. So, How does this influence the, these, this community of cookbooks here influence your uh, menu choices? Well, a great deal. Um, there is a salad that you could find probably in seven out of ten of those uh, called Calico Salad. Um, and I just love the names of these things. Uh, and so Calico Salad is always a multi-bean salad, um, always with dried beans and then a green bean or a yellow wax bean, but it's almost like a kitchen sink salad. Um, and boy, did they like their vinaigrette sweet. Uh, so ours is tamped down on the sugar, um, but uh, dressed bean salad that's served with our fresh walleye, um, and sloppy joe, uh, chili. Uh, very few times does the recipe get lifted exactly the way they did it onto our menu. I, I had that impression. Um, there, there's a, a cream cheese pastry that we opened with on a mushroom turnover dish uh, that needed no changing. Uh, it was just a wonderful pastry. Uh, that's probably the only thing that's been lifted directly because I'm not going to buy a, cream, a can of cream of mushroom soup. We're going to make our cream of mushroom soup and then make the casserole um, or our cheese sauce. You know, so more inspiration than education, at least as far as exactly what goes in the dishes. You know, as a restaurant, we have access to a lot fresher, better ingredients than perhaps your small town grocer w would have, um, especially in the 60s. Um, so. Will you change your menu seasonally? Yep. Uh, we. We just put a new dish on. Uh... We're brand new. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the rules of opening a restaurant is not to change too much uh, right away. Um, because you want, because people don't know you're there, and then when the time they find you're there, they've heard about all these things, and then they come to the restaurant to try these dishes, and then you're, you know, you've, it's none of it's available. 
Um, but I think we'll see more changes coming forward in the spring. We, we change as, about as the vegetation. I get changes. bored yeah. of it too. You know, like uh, our uh, our one of our grilled vegetarian dishes was beautiful summer produce, but now it's a grilled tofu on creamed corn. And uh, so we changed that. The pork chop became a pork shank. Yeah. I also just get tired of. I'm like, well, I'm bored of that dish, and uh, so we'll change it just on a whim or on, you know. And it is one of those things you have. It's hard to remember, you know, when you cook something every day for 45 days, for 50 days, for 90 days, that everybody in the dining room's never had it before, even though you've had it a hundred times. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those. That's things. that's so. that's that 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 um, discipline. Yeah. Yep. Which is and a lot of time it's not me cooking it. Most times it's not me cooking it. So I need to have the recipes dialed in such that those, everybody wants to make it yummy. Um, they just need a lot more guidance to make it the way I want in our recipes, so. One, one thing that I was kind of sorry to see go was the afternoon cooking programs. Oh. It, it, yes, I, and uh, to tell you honestly, that's how I learned how to cook was every afternoon I would turn on that TV and see what they were making, and then you know, I'd experiment on the family. <laughs> awesome. Um, absolutely. You know, when I was growing up, there was Great Chefs, Great Cities, there was Frugal Gourmet, there was the, uh, the, the, the afternoon uh, ones, and then Food Network showed up. And when it showed up, it was great. They were actually cooking shows, and now it seems like they've all gone to just competition shows, um, which... I'm not one that thinks cooking is a competition. Um, I don't love those shows as much as the ones that you're remembering so fondly. Um, I think we could use a little bit more of that. So. Except the PBS on Saturday. The, the, they home cooking and Aww. the jazzy chef and Rick Bayless has one and the PBS channels still have cooking cooking. That is good. Sarah Moulton is on there, and she's good in basic stuff. Um, Anna Olson from Canada. Oh, yeah. Is and good. the Norwegian book and the Irish book. Oh, that Norwegian guy's yeah. fantastic. Oh, he is. <laughs> you know what? He, came, he did a program for culinary historians before that program was ever on PBS. So we met him. Back then, it didn't mean too much. Now it's like, man, I'd like to meet him again. There's so much to talk about. Yep. <laughs> That's yep. sponsored by the, what, the Scandinavian tourist board. Well, you know, he's like, sometimes he's cooking on a boat, and you know that boat's rocking. And he's like, they bring in the things in the morning, what, what out, and they're selling you on the side of the roof. The flesh eggs are still hot. I mean, it's yeah. So, talking about the rabbits, though, in the 1930s, uh, during the Depression, my dad's uncle was a barber in Downers Grove and had a small farmette. And he had cows and chickens, and he raised rabbits. And there's, there's still this, this night that is in, in family lore, the night that Uncle Joe slaughtered and dressed a hundred rabbits in one night. Wow. Yeah. So, I can't say that I really ate rabbit at my grandmother's house, but this is the big story. Yeah. That night when Uncle Joe did hunt rabbits. I don't think he did it ever since. Anything else? Yes. I have a cookbook to offer. Edith, if you'll stand up. Stand up. That's my home. Edith is 104. She is a Northwestern oh. neurological um, study subject for five years because she is over 80 and functions like a 50-year-old. Absolutely. And she's in three PBS specials, two with Meredith, uh, two with Maria Schreiber and one with Meredith Vieira that you can find incredible aging on WTTW. Mm -hmm. But what she does every day is cooks. And for my 70th birthday, she gave me her recipes. Aww. And I am just so touched by this. Aww. Oh, but she's cooking from her head and experience, and anybody that's cooked for a hundred years, rabbit was not a luxury. No, right, no. And, uh, 
and she has wonderful stories. I have breakfast with her every morning for the inspiration. Oh, oh cool. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's, that's, that connection is just wonderful. So the question, Linda, eight. Rabbit in the winter and squirrels when they were plentiful. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to tell you a quick story about the rabbit. My cousin told me this. My cousin, who was over 15 years older than I, she did not. She said she didn't love the rabbit. I mean, she liked the rabbit meat, but she said she was always nervous eating rabbit, which they have often, because she had to be very careful biting on it because of the shot. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My dad's a bird hunter, and you had to almost the smoked pheasant you had to mush against the top of your mouth you didn't want to be chomping in there with the with the buckshot can hurt so could you imagine you have to worry about taking a bite <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's a very it's a very fine dining thing these days uh to to get a piece of a bird with buckshot in it you really? know it's, it's flown in from scotland or something like this because Oh, hunted. that's the proof of authenticity? It is. Of wildness. Hunted ah. game is illegal uh, in the United States. So the only time you can eat anything that's been hunted as opposed to farm-raised is when you have it imported from another country. And so if you're getting pheasant or Scottish hens or something like that, you might have to warn your table, you know, warn your guests, just so you know. There might be some buckshot in the breast. So be cautious because you don't want to crack your tooth. Like and it's that would do it. you know and it's a fifty dollar plate of food. Yeah. Yep, and it'll tell you. It'll be, yeah. Beware. From there. Yeah. yeah. Most of our food supply goes through the FDA and the USDA chain, um, and so wild animals don't end up in that chain. Um, yeah. You know, it's so you can't control the food source, so the FDA can't approve them. Yeah. So. Doesn't have the blue stamp. No. So. And because of the government shutdown. What is happening to our food source? As far as I can tell right now, nothing. And I just heard a pretty long article on it yesterday on NPR on the way home. Uh, the USDA inspectors are still going to work. And many of them, even my friend who owns a salami business here, that business pays for them. Oh, yes, um, that's true. So the, the, their salary isn't necessarily coming from the government. It's the responsibility of Vienna Beef to pay that person to be there. All the time. All, all the time. He's not allowed to make any sausages when the, the USDA inspector is not there. And she's there from 12 to 3 every day. Uh, and so. I want to comment on something you said about U of I. Just so everybody knows. There is still a meat sales lab at U of I. Meat yes. stores. And if you get on the email list for the meat sales, the manager, the whatever professor manager, he is the funniest joker. <laughs> it's just a delight to read what he writes. He sends out about a weekly or sometimes more often than weekly note about what's on sale at the meat lab. And I'm going to tell you something. We've got meat from there. It is phenomenal. The pork is extremely lean. Everything is like butchered that morning. So. One of my friends who studied there was part of a group that developed the pop-out thermometer in the butterball turkeys. <laughs> as a profession. Sure. Very cool. I'm a College of Agriculture, Food, and Natural Resources grad as well from the University of Missouri. And we have, most state schools have quite a nice extension program out there yes. that you guys, that you can get information on gardening. And But one of our responsibilities as a Kaffner was to sit in food tests um, and sensory panels and all of those things. And University of Missouri is quite known for its dairy department. And uh, I can just remember one time, 64 little white cups, and they were trying to uh, increase omega-3s in milk. And well, omega-3s are mostly found in fish. And boy, <laughs> were some of those cups uh, on the fish scale rather than the milk scale. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I know you gave us some recipes to prepare, and we didn't. Oh, it's okay. I didn't I have time either. That's uh, okay. No, no, no. We prepared recipes, but um, the, so one was, okay, so one recipe, um, there was supposed to be somebody else today, but there was a family issue. So, uh, 
I, I so at nine o'clock last night I had the like I like to have like the rule of threes type of a thing. So Barbara back there made some desserts. Do you want to talk about them? Tim. Desserts from the twenty ten Ohio State Fair. And one of them is called Granny's Orange Cake, where you uh, take the zest and the juice and the pulp and you uh, grind it or process it with raisins. And the half of uh, the orange, uh, the juice, is mixed with sugar. So then once it comes out of the oven, it's um, basted onto the cake and soaks in. And, and the leavening of that is uh, baking soda and was it buttermilk or sour milk? No, it, oh, okay. It calls for sour milk. And the common misconception is that sour milk is buttermilk. It really isn't. Generally, but it's acidic. Sour milk is um, you can just take regular milk and put in a, a little lemon juice, or sometimes you can use vinegar. It'll kind of like uh, curdle. Curdle. And it has, it's a lovely texture. So, uh, and this one called to put the. Um, the baking soda into the bag. But first I put a little of the, the lemon juice because it called for lemon juice. And so it's, we'll see how it, how it works. It's one of those recipes where that leavening, is, you don't have like the luxury of, oh, I got it together, let it sit for a while while I eat up the oven. It's like, you have that oven heated up, you have the dish prepared, and then you make the batter. Yeah. That's my reaction to that recipe. Right. I love it, it's a good one. Yeah. And then the, the second one is called uh, Mom's uh, Gingerbread. And that has um, molasses, and then it's, it's very similar to uh, George Washington's mother's recipe for gingerbread, and then it has multiple spices like cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and ginger. Uh, this one called for baking soda and baking powder, and it has uh, molasses in it. And then they, they do recommend that if you're, if you're doing this, it's the regular molasses, not the dark molasses, because that just tends to be a little more bitter. So I use the regular grandma molasses. Maybe sometimes it explains <laughs> to me the whole molasses thing, because I don't know it completely. Uh, so what I made was we were going to have meatballs, but that, that wasn't going to happen. But my dad was in Milwaukee yesterday and went to Usinger's, and he bought, amongst other things, he bought a Yachtwurst. Yeah, Yachtwurst, Yachtwurst. So I said, all right, we're going to have German sausage salad. So I made that. Cool. And then the other thing, this was first prize, 2015 at the Missouri State Fair, and it was called Lily's Salad. And it's a salad where it was like two cups of, of marshmallows, but cut up. Because I remember the person when she won, she goes, you don't know how much work it was to cut up those marshmallows. <laughs> and, and that's what people did. You know, before there was the mini marshmallows, you had to bought the big ones, and then you sat there with a scissor and cut them up. Well, I, I cut them up, but it, was, but it looked very elegant, you know, because the, the, they were like slivers of, of marshmallows. So I did that. It was two cups of grapes in half, but I did it in quarters because I thought that would look a little better. Um, it was supposed to be a cup and a half of pineapple that you kind of mushed up, and I had one can of, uh, of, of crushed pineapple and another one of pineapple tidbits. So that went in there, and uh, orange slices, and this was all kind of like mixed together, and then you made a very light custard which was supposed to be flavored with lemon juice, but I got a little nervous about using lemon juice, afraid it might curdle the milk and cream and sugar. So I put, I had from Nielsen Macy some lemon extract. So I put that instead of lemon juice, and then uh, whipped two uh, whipped cream, and then folded the custard into the cream, and then put everything on the sauce. It is really good. I remembered it being really good when I tried it at the fair, and it was like. Oh yeah, this is really good. And I made, I made a double batch, which um, after I read it, it said make 16 servings with a single batch. 
Uh, I was like, oh, I think I went a little overboard. And I was, because I had, like, you know, like a five-quart bowl there, and it was, like, going over the edges. <laughs> so I left a little bit of dad. But, you know, for our state fair contest, everybody has to write a little history. So if you don't mind, I'll read it. It's very brief. Of Lily's salad history, it was submitted by Shannon Cobb of Lexington, Missouri. She goes, my great-grandmother Cora, Mama, Brooks, and her husband, Ted, I think, moved to Leadville, Colorado around 1900 in search of a better life. Oh, it was Jed. Jed had heard that Leadville was rich in certain ores, not gold, which he thought would surely improve their quality of life. Unfortunately, Jed was unsuccessful at mining, and my great-grandmother realized that he was not very work-brickle. That's the statement, work-brickle. They left their tiny cabin in Lensville, Colorado, and returned to Lee's Summit, Missouri, where Cora was originally from. While in Leadville, Cora had a son, Frank, who died during childbirth. After returning to Lee's Summit, Cora discovered she was pregnant with their second child. With a toddler and a baby on the way, she soon realized she would be responsible for, for providing for the family, because, you know, that guy is not word brickle, work brickle. Never heard that phrase before, have you? No. That's a new one for me, too. Cora had always been an excellent cook. She opened a restaurant in Lee's Summit. Cora's mother, Jed, and several other relatives helped out in the restaurant. She and Jed lived in the back of the restaurant. Jed became ill with consumption and was moved to a neighbor's house. He briefly stayed outside in a, in a bed under a tree with a mosquito net over the bed until his death in 1914. Cora continued to run the restaurant while caring for three little girls. She fixed a variety of dishes at the restaurant, including chili, meatloaf, pork, and beef roast, oh, I guess, mashed potatoes with gravy, various vegetables, she always had green beans, salads, biscuits, cakes, pies, strawberry shortcake, cookies. She enjoyed experimenting with different foods and trying out new recipes. Cora had a knack for knowing which foods would complement each other. She cooked many of her signature items in the restaurant without a recipe. Providing hearty home-cooked meals to her customers made her happy. On very rare occasions, she would make a small batch of lily salad. Lily salad had been the staple in my family for many years. It was often prepared for Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners. After approximately five years in the restaurant business, Cora decided to move to Warrensburg, Missouri. She wanted her girls to have the opportunity to receive a good education, and soon after moving, Cora was introduced to Newt Murphy, who later became her second husband. They raised three daughters and adopted another daughter, which is her grandmother. And anyway, that's that family's story, but that is a darn good recipe. It's the kind where, you know, I have to be careful what, what recipes I introduce at our Thanksgiving dinner because once my nieces really like it, that's tradition. And I'm stuck <laughs> making it for the next 10 years. But you know what? It was really worth it. Yeah, Barbara. Okay, and, uh, another uh, dish that uh, I made um, is a uh, German uh, almond paste uh, confectionery. Uh, that's used in a reproduction Victorian uh, dual wooden mold. So one is where the family goes to the woods to get the Christmas tree, <laughs> and the other one is once they bring it in, it's a small tree that's set on top of the table. It's not this huge one that we know. So um, because we're in the past Christmas, if you take one, I recommend that you snap off a piece and put it in your mouth uh, to soften it because uh, it does harden after time. But it is a, a very nice delicate flavor. And uh, getting back to one of my uh, favorite cookbooks, uh, Kathy was with me this summer, so uh, for several decades I've always wanted to go to the Arrow Rock Cafe in Missouri because it's the oldest uh, continuously operated restaurant uh, west of the Mississippi. And they had a regional cookbook because it was the first historical, national historical site in Missouri. And the book is just charming because it has recipes from DAR chapters 
all around the country because they were the ones who led the movement to preserve this, what was Houston Tavern, which everybody just calls Arrow Rock because it's in Arrow Rock. And Kathy and I went there for their dinner this summer. And I can attest to you that it's not an easy place to find because the GPS just sent us on these country roads. We drove around in the middle of nowhere for an hour uh, because we couldn't find the National Highway Summit. And we finally doubled back and it Got was back on the expressway and there was an exit that said Arrow Rock. And I'm like, we're going! And at that point I was like, I was hungry, I was tired, and this location was just irksome. Yeah, but it was it was well worth the, the trip. And they do a, a, a family-style dinner, so it's like fried chicken. And those green beans with the bacon, the beans, delicious. mashed potatoes and gravy. It, yeah. was, it was well worth the trip. Well, and once we got this there. particular uh, book, is that it also among the, the DR, DAR recipes and the stories, uh, it has the recipes from the Arrow Rock Tavern. And at the time, they had an African-American cook, and she had an assistant. So there's a beautiful full-page illustration, photograph rather, of the two ladies. And then in the book, it says which of the recipes are from the head cook, which I just found absolutely charming, because you usually don't see the pictures of the cooks in the book. Right. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, guys.